First, a big thank you and welcome to our first episode at the Mind Sensei podcast. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and today we have a very special guest, close friend, mentor and personal instructor, ninth degree Kempo master who's dedicated his life to the study and practice of martial arts. He's the founder of GL Kempo Karate Organization, hailing from Clovis, California. He's none other than Graham Lelliot. Mr. Lelliot is affectionately known as the Gov by students and is known for his human connection that has not only brought together students from all around the world into the GL Kempo fold, but also runs one of the largest biannual international training camps of the Kempo Who's Who that's held in Wonder Valley, California. In this episode, we'll delve into Graham's journey into Kempo Karate, from his early days as a student to his lineage and his involvement with Grandmaster Edmund Parker, to his current role as renowned martial arts instructor and founder of the GL Kempo Karate Organization. So sit back, relax, Get ready to learn from the most insightful and inspiring martial arts of our time. Welcome, Mr. Graham Lilliet, to the Mind Sensei podcast. Can you please tell our listeners uh, how you got started in the martial arts? Yeah, so I first started in 1970, late 73, 74, in Jersey, under a a guy called Don Cassidy, who was a brown belt, and he was under the lineage of Morris Mahoon from uh, Dublin. So I knew I knew all of the the, the uh, Irish black belts like Barney Coleman, Morris, Shay Pageant, all and they so we were basically under that lineage. And then when Don left the island, um, a guy called Roy McDonald basically took the helm of the club, but he was only a brown belt. So um, we didn't have a black belt instructor. We were still under the Irish. Um, but then at some stage, uh, Roy made contact with Ed Parker. And, well, I don't think it was through Ed Parker. I think he went into Larry's school. And then um, made, he made friends with a guy called Rainer Schulte, who became my instructor, uh, who tested me to brown belt. So your first entry into martial arts was American camp, right? It was American camp, but it was the Irish yeah. And I don't think it was, it didn't look like the um, stuff that we got off of Rainer. Because Rainer was closer to the Ed Parker system. Yeah. I think it was probably somewhere closer to the Tracy stuff, although I don't know if there was a direct line with them. I don't know if it was Max Sweeney or John Conway, I'm not sure, yeah, okay. that started that off. But I, did, I never met either of them anyway. Um, so what attracted you to Kemper? My brother had started it when I was... Uh, when he, there was a guy called Dermot McQuillan many, many years back who was uh, working in Jersey. I'm not sure if he was a plumber or electrician, but he was one of those guys that done a lot of demos with brakes and things like that, and Brian would be into that with breaking tiles and all that sort of stuff. So he, he was the one that started it all. And then uh, when I went away from the island in 73 to be a roadie with a show band, when we came back to the island... All the boys said, we want to do some karate. We'd met a guy up in, in uh, Doncaster who was doing some Shotokan stuff. And we said, well, we'll go and I said, well, when we get back to the island, I know a, a guy that do some karate. Because I'd been on the floor once or twice, I think, as a, as a, young, a younger guy. So when we came back, we got in touch with, um, with Don Cassidy. And uh, that's when we started. We all started at the same time there. So when they went back into the mainland, I didn't travel back with them. And uh, basically, my journey started then, so I just just kept going at it. How long uh, ago was that? This would have been 1973, 74. 
When did you achieve your black belt? So I got my black belt in 1980. So we'd met with um, Rainer Schulte, I think it was 76 or 7, something like that. And that's when I got my, my brown belt. I think it would have been about 76. And then, so Roy McDonald was uh, a brown belt. Myself was brown belt. Dave Williams, Jimmy Rennie, and a guy called John Jacklin. I would say that John Jacklin was probably the, the most talented out of all of us. But when we finally split with the Irish and the Americans, uh, to go with the Americans, John decided to stay with the Irish. Um, so that, so then became, there was four black belts. So it was Roy Mack, myself, Dave Williams, and Jim Rennie. So Roy Mack had the higher rank because when they crossed over to the, from the, it used to be like a white belt with black stripes on. And then when he crossed over, they gave Roy a brown belt, um, even though he did a test. And so um, when John Jacklin got a, a, a black belt and we were still together then, Roy disappeared to, um, to Larry Tatum school for a week and came back with a black belt because we were all supposed to test as brown belts together doing the Parker system. So we didn't know all the Parker system yet. We still waited another two, well, nearly two years before we got that. So that's, um, so that's basically the history. When you'll see a lot of people, well, you'll, you'll see a lot of posts where Roy Mack considers me his, his student. He did run the school for a while, but I definitely wasn't his student because we were still under the Irish at that stage. And then when Rainer came on the scene, I was definitely under Rainer's tutorage. So when I took my black belt, it was under Rainer. And, and, and him as your first instructor? Yeah, especially in the American Kempo. And then uh, I took my second and third while Rainer was still at the helm. But then he was actually starting to get more out of the system. And then when I took my fourth, along with Gary Ellis and uh, Christian Springer, we, we all became Ed Parker students. He signed our certificates on both sides saying that he was our instructor. From, from that time on, Rainer was off the scene by then. We were lucky, and we were the, the only the only black belts in Europe that got first, second, third, fourth directly from Parker. Because okay. Roy Mack, he, although he got his first, second, fifth off of Parker, he didn't get his first. He got that off of Larry Tatum. So, Mr. Lilly, can you let us know when did you achieve your black belt? Black belt grading was on November the fifth, which is a big date in in Britain because it's called Guy Fox Day. It's that was the day that Mr. Parker, we'd been in England and Gary Ellis tested two days before. I was actually in on Gary's test. Um, and then we came over to Jersey because all the Jersey boys wanted to test together in Jersey. And I remember it was snowing on that day, which was unusual for uh, Jersey because November, we never really ever got snow. And we're saying, oh, you'll be nice and warm, Mr. Parker. We're coming 100 miles south and it's snowed. <laughs> so, yeah, so the black belt test went well. We, we were prepared. You know, in them days, I used to train with a rugby 15, the first first 15, and do like horses cross-country courses, like kind of stuff where you're lifting poles up, climbing ropes, running through sand, up sand dunes, down sand dunes, running. So I was very fit, I was, and I was 32 years old then, so you probably, as a man, you're pretty much at your peak. You know, I didn't start karate until I was 25, but so by my 32, I was... I was in good condition, I take it. When did you have your first school? I had my first school as a brown belt. We had a couple of different branches, and he, and he got the, the contact to open the school, but then he said, well, I can't do this, so I took the reins of it. And from then on, that was my school. It was well known in Jersey and in, in Europe, actually, as the Kennedy the School. 
So it had a good name when anybody came over. So we were def we were definitely two different identities from the t school in town to the school that was at McKenley. Is the school still running now? It's not running as at that premises, but Ian Harris is still running the school under Lacanavays, and then Paul, Paul McMurray took it over for a while. Right. There, there was a couple of guys took it over. I left it when I left Jersey. It was a guy called Nigel Romrell, who was one of my fifth degrees, who later went with Johnson Pulver on my recommendation. Because when I left Europe, I, I, I pushed my people toward John because he was the closest one to us at the time. And that includes the, the, some of the Spanish. And that, so, but it was still running under, under Nigel, and he kind of let it slip a little bit. And that's when Paul took it over, under my blessing. So he got that up. And then when Paul died, Neil Roberts took it over. And then they changed the name to Quantum when they moved the premises. But still out in some Brellards is where Ian Harris is. So he's, they're very tightly uh, connected. Yeah. But, but, they're, but they're, them two are now a different identity, which is fine because they're both, you know, one's an eighth degree, one's a fifth degree. They can go their own ways. And can you tell us, did you train personally with uh, Ed Parker, the founder of American Kempo? Well, everybody done stuff with Mr. Parker. But I mean, what I remember most about Ed Parker was that he never, ever, ever made me feel uncomfortable in a seminar or in a test or anything like that. Um, some of the tests he would do, they'd end up running like a seminar because he'd see things and he, and he couldn't miss the opportunity to say, well, let's try it like this, let's do this, whatever. My testing times came in 1980, 1982, 1985, and then 1989. So it was like a, a two-year bump, then a three-year bump, then a four-year bump. That was under Ed Parker. Then it was. Um, then I stayed with the IKKA for the next test under fifth. Um, but that wasn't Mr. Parker was already had already passed on then. Can you tell us? Do you have any memorable stories with Ed Parker? Stories with, I mean, he was one of those guys always made you feel that you were kind of special. And one of the stories I always tell, I've probably told you as well as when I was in England one time and there was a, we'd, we'd been doing seminars for about three hours, something like that. But after about two hours, my head was just, you know, like the sponge that's full. And everybody's taking notes and I'm kind of thinking, I just, you know, I'm not really learning anything anymore. There's just too much. And then I, when I walked out uh, the uh, thing, when, when the seminar had finished, I was walking down the street with Mr. Parker, and we were a few steps above, uh, ahead of everybody. And I, was, and I told him, I said, what I thought, I said there was too, there was too much information coming my way that I couldn't take it in. in that, uh, you know, you get a saturation point to say, I'll tell the story where I go because it's 100% true. He put his arm around me, and he looked behind, make sure nobody listening. He goes, Graham, slow to learn, slow to forget said, all these people by tomorrow, they'll have done all this stuff, but they won't remember hardly any of it. You'd have, you'd have gone to saturation point, basically, and then stopped. You'll remember more than all of them will tomorrow. And I think he's right, because my, I, once something goes in my head, I remember it, and it stays. Uh, there's some, you know, as I've shown you sometimes, the things in the forms that you say, I want you to work like this, Graham. And I think they were just one-offs. Maybe um, yeah, he might have showed two or three people, but sometimes I'm sure it was like one-off where his train of thought was at the time. And that's never left me. That'll, that'll always stay with me. So whether I'm right, wrong, or indifferent about what the forms and that might be or technique, if he's shown me that thing at that specific time, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of sticks with me and makes me feel proud that that was something special that he'd done with me. So I won't change that no matter what people say.
you see me working in forms with you where I'll say this is what Mr. Parker said to me, but I'm not. I'm not saying that this is 100% right because he changed his. He's, you know, it was an evolving. It's evolving art still is. So, when if you look at Parker in the old days, in the 60s, and you look at some of the footage, but he he was evolving all the time. So as he's he's done the forms and the techniques, he would change them, and he didn't have a problem changing. Sometimes he would tailor it for a different person. He's got somebody that's five foot tall and somebody that's seven foot tall. He's not going to teach them the exact same way. So, but, so that would be their journey. But So you'd be wrong to then say this is the way because it was the way for you. It wasn't always the way for everybody else. But the specific things that he gave me away from me will always stay with me. And, and I'll always teach that way. So that sometimes when you'll see people that are on my line, they'll do the same things as me. And people might say, that's wrong. It's not wrong. It's just different. So can you give us a brief history of your martial arts journey? Like a brief history on my life. For people that don't know me, I come from the island of Jersey in English Channel, which is situated about 100 miles south of England, just off the French coast. That's where I started my karate journey and uh, continued up until, I think it was around 2000 or 2001, when uh, I got married to Jadine and we moved into Central Valley in California. So once we moved out there, I left the schools to Ian and, and uh, Paul. And then I started up the, my own school in the garage in, in Clovis in California. So for the first year or so, I was working on uh, cement mixes because I didn't go full time. After that, we, we, we moved location into a premises and try. And I was still working with the mixes at the time, but trying to do two jobs and it just become a little hard then. So we had to make a decision, did we stop the karate or stop the work? And uh, the work got chopped and the karate went forward. Our location has moved twice while we've been there. So we moved from, from one place in um, Fresno into Clovis itself and been there ever since. So uh, if anybody comes into California, if you look up the town of Clovis, we're situated on the corner of Armstrong and Shaw in Clovis. We've been there for since about... 2005, I think, 2004, 2005. So we, we've been situated a long time there now. I have sister schools that are from the people that are in line with me, namely the, the premier one, I guess, would be with, with Pete Valdez. Some people will know Pete through me. His school is up in Madeira in California. There's also a school in Kerman, and there's schools on the central coast under Danny, Danny Perez. So anybody that wants to get in touch with any of the schools around that area, which is basically Central Valley, California, can get in touch with myself or look through the, through the information if they see and they see if they're aligned with me. The best way for them to do that. I've been to Australia quite a few times and New Zealand. How did all that come about? Yeah, first I dropped the name James Rodriguez. James was one of my black belts back in Jersey. Him and his sister uh, both tested for black with me. But James had actually left for New Zealand already. When he was there, he, he met with some Kempo people, but he wanted to continue his journey, and he, and he made a decision that he wanted to do his black belt with me. So he, he packed up the family and brought him back to Jersey for a year and then um, continued his journey. Then he re-immigrated out to New Zealand again to start from that. So, um, so James was always a first-generation black belt with me. And then we kept in touch... And, and then, he's, then he said, uh, he, he met a guy called Tom Cullen. 
that he was aligned with, along with a lot of other Campo people in Australia and New Zealand. And he said that, that he put my name forward. He wanted me to go and teach or to, to meet Tom Cullen. So they brought me down to do a quick seminar down in, in Disney in, in California. That's where I first met Tom. And then he invited me to go to Sydney and do another the Kempo for Kids thing. And so that's where I really met Tom Cullen. And that's when I had exposure to a lot of other people from Australia and New Zealand. So I would, from that trip, I went to Sydney and then I bounced into New Zealand to start, start working with James. Uh, and that's when I met some other people back in there that were around the different parts of New Zealand. And, and from then on, really, that's when I met the people that were out of Tom Cullen's Kempo for Kids. They were, they, they were also um, doing a different program called the Ed Parker System, which I was doing. So long story short, years later, I, I started working more with uh, people like, uh, like Peter Taz or Taziopoulos. And that became my springboard into Australia very much because he's one of those guys that, um, that he, he'll push you, but he'll push you right there. He's very, very computerized, so he does things that you wouldn't do for yourself. I'm not a computer literate guy, and Pete's the one that would be probably most instrumental, for, well, for sure, in Australia that has pushed it along, made it easier for me to different contacts. And between him and James, I've, I've just kept traveling out to New Zealand and Australia. And since being in America, I guess that's helped me become more renowned as well in America through people like Bob White. I've stayed close with people like John Sepulveda, Lee Wedlake. Lee is now, I recognize Lee as my instructor, but I use that in loose terms because he's more of a friend to me than anything else. He's given me plenty of advice. So that's pretty much my lineage around uh, US and New Zealand and Australia. Uh, I've, met, I've met and worked in a lot of places in, in uh, America at different people's camps. So I've gotten to know, I've been, I guess I've been lucky on a journey that I've gotten to know a lot of people that are very prominent in the Ed Parker art. So again, at the end of the day, you make your own luck. So that's where we are. So in your journey, were you involved in any other countries throughout Europe? I still go back to Europe. Um, I was, I was the, the first instructor that was set loose by Ed Parker and Rainer Schultz in, in Europe, beside the two of them. Rainer, it became become hard for Rainer to keep making trips from the US. Plus, I think, I'm not sure who he was for, but I think he was a CIA agent. So then when the Spanish wanted some people to go down there, Parker and Rainer said that I was a good fit to go down with him. So I started teaching Madrid. And then the people would come from all over Spain to come to there. Then I started branching out into southern Spain. So pretty much for quite a few years while Park was live and after, it was me that brought the Spanish together. So they were, a lot of the Spanish will now even say that I was like the father of Kempo in Spain. So I definitely brought a lot of them back into the IKKA. And when Mr. Park had died, they were still, they'll tell you to this day, they still recognized me as their first instructor down there really in Kempo. That bounced up into Sweden. A guy called Ingmar Johansson, uh, Mrs. Parker, phoned me one time and said that he was looking for an instructor and she thought I'd be a good fit for him. So she, she gave my, me as a contact and that's how I started spreading up to the Scandinavian countries. I'd, I'd also been teaching at times in, in uh, Germany. That I, In the old days, I used to travel to Germany sometimes to to be in a competition in the Europeans, or sometimes just to work with Rainer. 
but I've also taught in Germany a few times with um, different schools there. So, so, so I've been quite a bit around Europe, Dublin, places like that, across America, in you know, quite a few different states, and obviously Australasia. So it's been quite like I've even been down into um, South America, down in Mexico and Venezuela, places like that. So I've had a bit of a charmed life, I guess, luckily. Tell us a bit about your international camp. Our international camp, we call it the Wonder Valley Camp, and it's something that my wife Jadine and myself, a couple of years into our into our new school, we were, we were thinking about should we do a nice camp, and I'd seen the Jeff Speakman camps, um, which were a huge hit in Las Vegas. So when we were in uh, when we had our school up and running in um, in Clovis, we just thought one year, well, why don't we bring? I don't know enough people that are from uh, Australia, New Zealand, Europe and around America that, that could be a good fit for a camp on a smaller scale than the Speedman would be in Las Vegas, so not so grand. But, so we, 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 we tossed with the idea where we'd do it in a hotel or whatever, or where we would do it. And then um, I'm not sure how we got in touch with, with Wonder Valley, but when we did eventually see that, we thought the setting would be fantastic. Rather than the big hotels in Vegas at, the, at, at Jeff's camps, where people would go into the seminars and then you wouldn't see each other. And then, because everybody would be bumping around Vegas or in the bars or having dinner somewhere else. So we, we looked at the um, at the, the location in Wonder Valley and thought that would be much more intimate that if we brought people in from all over the world and world-class instructors, which I was lucky enough to have as friends, that we could be on-site, but people would, have, would be able to, to um, get to meet people on a much more private, personal level. So that's really why we stuck with the Wonder Valley. And it was a huge success the first time, and it's grown every year since. That's why we're sticking with that, and we've been going for over 20 years now. So it's every two so years? It goes, goes biannually uh, every two years. So uh, we invite anybody, as long as you don't come in with a huge ego, because if you have a ego, it, you won't be a good fit for the camp. You know, we want people that are just going to treat a white belt the same as you would treat a black belt. So tell us, do you have any funny stories with Mr. Parker you can share with us? Mr. Parker, not, not really funny stories, just, I mean, he, he, was, he loved to tell jokes. He was, he was quite a comical man. I mean, he, even on the floor, he, would, he, would tell, he was a storyteller. I mean, really, really good storyteller. And that would be with his Kempo as well. He, he could tell one story for one. If, if you've got different educated people, say you've got somebody that can barely sweep a road and you've got a brain surgeon, you're probably not going to be on the same intellectual level. So you would have to adopt a way of teaching for each student. But that came out through his stories. And there's plenty of black belts around the world will tell you different stories about about the way he taught. But on a personal level, I mean, I used to enjoy going out socially with him. I was never one of these people that would just talk Kempo all the time because that was around his, that was in his face all the time. And it's not that he minded it, but sometimes you look at people and I know with myself, I don't want to talk Kempo 24-7. I value friendship. So with Mr. Parker, I would sit with and have dinner with him. And quite often he would call me up to just say, got any good jokes, Graham? And we would sit opposite each other and bounce a few jokes back. I guess it's a funny story. You'd always watch his eating habits. Because he would, he was one of those, you would look around a table and he'd go, 
what are you eating? What are you eating? What are you eating? And he seemed to lean forward, but he always had his own arm shield and his own food, so you never got to eat his food. But he would always eat everybody else's. I mean, who's not going to give their talker some food? You know? But he was, he, was just, yeah, he was just a funny guy in person, but, but a fair man. He could be very violent and he could be very, very gentle. But I'd never, ever seen him where he was disrespectful to anybody. And that's the way I go with my teaching. So, you know, I have a skill. I have a skill set that's in one field. If, if I go with somebody else who's got a skill set somewhere else, I don't expect to be treated like an idiot. And he was the same. And I, that's why I treat people, you know, if, they, if they're slow to learn, like Mr. Polker said to me, slow to learn, slow to forget. Do you have a favorite technique or group? Not really. I mean, um, preferably one that would work. There are plenty of techniques that, 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 that I don't think would fit most people. But I think it's just teaching you motion for the sake of motion, which is not a bad thing because you don't, you know, at any given time in a fight, you don't know what you might use. It might be something you pick up that you've never, ever seen before. You just did it. As far as the technique, you know, we all have our favorites in, in terms of teaching because they can be a teaching skill set. Uh, like I, if I take five swords or something like that, which are master key, you can do a good seminar off of it because there's so many things that'll fit with size five swords. But, but as far as, would that be my favorite technique to deliver? I don't know. I mean, you know, some you like, some you don't. I never really think of it as having a favorite. What advice would you give to someone wanting to start or was actually training in deep martial arts? I would say to somebody, somebody like, well, for anybody, enjoy your journey. Don't make it about that you have to reach this goal super fast. Because then you miss all the good things along the way. It's like taking a holiday. You know, if you go with people, you see the Japanese. And I'm not picking on the Japanese. You see them go out in a busload of people. They've got their cameras. They jump off the bus for two seconds, take pictures, back on. And they'll go back to Japan and go, yeah, we've seen the world. But you didn't. You saw it through a couple of clicks in a camera. You didn't enjoy the atmosphere of the place or anything like that. So your, your karate journey should be the same. Just take your time. Enjoy it along the way. Don't rush because then you miss all the good things. You know? And don't make it just about karate. Make it about friendship. Make it about lifetime achievements for yourself and, and lifetime friends and that would always be way more important for me than than anything on the karate journey i could stop the karate tomorrow but i wouldn't want to leave my friends alone tomorrow i'd say that just enjoy your journey take your time don't be in a hurry for it tell us have you had any life real life experience with your martial arts yeah i've had before the martial arts I was, I was working door security with my brother and different friends and whatever. So we already, and, and throughout my youngster life, as, as you, if, you know, the year that I was born, you, had a, 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 you didn't have the, the, the commodities and everything that you have nowadays. You were just brought up a bit more rough and tumble, I think. So working on the doors definitely gave me some experience to fighting. If I'd used martial arts on the door, probably sometimes, but you, you might not always recognize it as a given technique. Somewhere along the line, a part of a technique might be there. But the one thing that I, <clears throat> I really dislike about when you, when you get people in a school that have a school and they're always quoting real life, that haven't actually had real life fights. And there's, I mean, there's good fighters and there's bad fighters in the dojos, but there's no experience like fighting in the street. That's a whole different ball game completely. And people that, that, are, that I've found along the way that... Um, doesn't make them bad people it just irritates me a little bit when they're always quoting 
to their students in the real world, in the real world, it would be like this when they, you can tell the ones who have never had a fight in the real world. I guess what I'm saying is don't put the pressure on your student to, they have to be this and they have to be that when you've never even been there yourself. So you don't know what you're doing in the real world. You don't know if some people are testing and you get down on them saying, wow, you've got to face the pressure and everything like that. We face pressure different ways. We all, we all handle it differently. So a lot of these people that are in the dojos quoting that every day, every day, every day, maybe should step in a real world once in a while and see what happens when it's, when uh, S it's the fan and just see if they would change their tune a little bit then because you can see some of the students in there, they might not do karate looking very good, but there's plenty of them people that I would rather have in my corner than a black belt that just keeps quoting the stuff that looks nice and clean in a dojo, but nobody's fighting them back. So my, my experience has been when you're in the dojo, everything is sharp, clean, it looks movie ready when it's on the street. It is ugly. <laughs> yeah, it's rough and ugly and, and rough and tumble. You're going to get hit every now and again. You're going to bounce around. It's going to look, it's going to look a bit crappy, but Parker had the best saying of sum it all up. It's not who's right, it's who's left. Notice during the International Journey book, I've read that, got a copy of it, great book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, just very briefly, the original International Journey and, and probably the subsequent ones, it's really about being in the right place at the right time, who you know. I'm not saying that I don't deserve to be in a journey book, but there's plenty of other people that would deserve to be there. And I would say, especially for the original journey book, if, you, if you're in the right place at the right time, you got your face into that book, when there's a lot of people that would probably should have been there before you. I'm not anti the books, because I'm in one of them, and I'm privileged to be in it. It's not just about them people. There's a lot more people around the world that deserve to be in similar books or whatever. So... Um, I think the beauty of the books are is that they bring to the forefront people out there that then open the doors for further channels to move to meet the other people too. Though. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it's it's a good thing, but as I say, it's um it's not something you should be over uh, egotistical about because you're just a number, be in the right place at the right time, have the right connections. That gets you into a lot of things, not just the Kempo Journey books, but a lot of things. You know. It's like a street musician or whatever. I mean, you look at somebody that's a movie star or not a movie star, say a singing star around the world. You could go down to any bar, any street corner, and you'll find people every bit as talented. Just didn't get the right breaks at the right time. Karate's no, no different. I mean, you, you're, the cream of the crop might come to the very top, but it's not to say that there's not a lot of other people that are just as good, they're just not getting the breaks. So what you tell us a little bit about your lineage, some of your black belts, and then what the future holds for your lineage for all the students. Well, as I said um, earlier, my lineage at some stage started with, with different black belts, but I continued, and, and I feel privileged that I became a first-generation black belt with Ed Parker with my fourth degree. And that's kind of been something that I've been very, very proud of. But now I have my own lineage, and I have my own family tree, and I have students all over the world. And I also have high-ranking black belts all over the world. I guess the question comes around every now and again, what happens when you're not here, when you either retire or die or whatever happens? Again, we, we don't know what happens. Um, we, we had the, the ultimate test when Mr. Parker passed away. There's a lot of high-ranking black belts, and you know, egos get to take over very easily in, in uh, karate. 
and Kempo's no different. So I, I guess the advice that I would have for my black belts and what I would like for my lineage to do is to look after yourselves. Create your own lineage off of yourself, but stay true to a, to, to a friendship that we've created under the GL Kempo lineage. Doesn't mean you can't have a figurehead if everybody agrees on it, but in my mind, if I retire or I pass on or anything like that, I would like to people to kind of had like a committee or whatever where everybody has a say. If they have a club, they should have a say. It shouldn't be about one person dictating. Although I'm, I'm considered a figurehead at the, at the top of my line, I still listen to people and I don't get involved in their schools. Like if they want to do one thing, it's not for me to turn around and say, you can't do that. If it's something that I really dis dislike, I would just cut that, st that school from my life. So that's, um, that's a pretty easy thing to do. But I would, I would want my lineage going forward to have their own identity. If they want to, as a committee with the school owners, put somebody at the top of that pile that would have my blessing or, or a couple, two, three people. That's the way I would like it going forward. I think they, they're well capable of looking after themselves because that's what I've created. So that's what they should run with. They don't need anybody else after me. They need to look after themselves and run with their own. Thanks again to our special guest, Mr. Graham Lilliet. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and you've tuned in to the Mind Sensei podcast from Down Under. I want to take a moment to thank all our listeners for tuning in to the Mind Sensei podcast. We appreciate your support and hope our show has been both informative and entertaining for you. If you haven't already done so, we would like to invite you to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. By subscribing, you'll be the first to know when we release new content and you'll have access to all of our past episodes. We also encourage you to visit our website at mindsensei.au where you can find additional resources related to martial arts. On our site, you can read blog posts, videos, and learn more about the guests we feature on our show. Finally, we'd like to thank our guests for sharing their knowledge and experience with us. Without their generosity, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you again for listening to the Mind Sensei podcast down under. We hope that you continue to join us on this journey through the world of martial arts. <laughs>